In 2017, we, uh, I was just driving down the street and I heard this interview on NPR and it was about this child in New Mexico who had gone to get a school lunch and he walked up to the cash register with his meal in his hand and it turned out that he didn't have enough money on his account to pay for the lunch. And so the lunch lady took the meal out of his hands and threw it in the trash right in front of him and gave him an alternative meal, like a you know a cold cheese sandwich instead of the healthy meal. So they took a healthy meal, one that had already been served that they couldn't give to anybody else, and instead of letting that child eat that meal, they threw it away, and they did it in front of him. And you know, of course, a child is going to be traumatized by that. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin. Our mission on this podcast is to help you realize your dreams of doing meaningful work. Here you'll meet and be inspired by amazing people who overcame great odds. You'll discover what sparked them, how they explored work opportunities, the strategies that they employed to ensure career success, and the actions they boldly took to make it all happen. You'll also meet esteemed and nationally recognized thought leaders who are helping people like you to develop work skill, experience, and leadership, and seize opportunity from a changing world so that your beautiful work dreams turn into reality. Together, let's turn work meaningful, for meaningful work is the future of work. Adele Settle already does meaningful work as an attorney for a federal government agency. But as the mom of an elementary school-aged child in Virginia's second-largest school system, Adele discovered that thousands of kids often go hungry because they, their parents, or caregivers cannot afford to repay their outstanding student lunch account debt. Adele could not sit idly by, and that is how she founded Settle the Debt, a nonprofit organization that pays off school lunch accounts with outstanding balances in her community and beyond. To learn about her life story and mission, we sat down with Adele Settle during November 2019 in Gainesville, Virginia. So welcome to the tightrope, Adele Settle. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Let's travel back in time to your life growing up in Ypsilanti, Michigan. When you were young, getting ready for bed after a long day at school or play, what did you dream about being when you were all grown up? Well, when I was really little, I thought I was going to be an opera singer. So when I was a small child, I would go to bed and I, I loved to sing. I was in a youth choir when I was six and I, I sang a lot. Um, I joined many choirs throughout my childhood. Um, and I, I really thought I was going to be a, a professional opera singer for a long time. Where did the opera singer story come from? <laughs> Um, so I grew up in a family of theater people. So my father uh, managed the two larger theaters for the University of Michigan. So that was Pow the Power Center and Lydia Mendelssohn theaters in at the University of Michigan. So I grew up attending constant musical events. You know, we, we had musicians in our household all the time, dancers, choreographers, um, singers, actors, you name it. They That was our social circle kind of. And... You know, I, I grew up in the backstage of these theaters oftentimes, like that's where I would go and hang out if, you know, if someone wasn't available to be at home with me, then I was in the backstage with my dad. That's fantastic. Yeah. So we mentioned Ypsilanti. In the past 40 years, that factory town has gone through quite a transformation. Some might say it's actually gone backwards. Did being around a community like that and seeing so many struggle to put food on the table sensitize you to the needs of others? Yeah, um, so Ypsilanti is an interesting place. It's it's a little city unlike any place I've ever really been before or since, really. It's a, it's a community that has um, the university, the Eastern Michigan University, so there, there's a college town atmosphere there, um, but it's also a factory town. Um, we had a lot of um, you know different parts and manufacturers for different parts of the the big three auto mostly like Ford I believe was when I was growing up it was mostly you know Ford suppliers um, mm. and as the auto industry has changed and factories have moved out of the Detroit area um, that has kind of left a hole um, in our community 
And um, many families actually moved to Ypsilanti um, for those manufacturing jobs. So right. we had um, kind of a, a community of people that were mostly from, you know, the, the Kentucky area that mm-hmm. had moved up um, to our town to, um, you know, to make a better future for themselves. And, um, you know, as the factories left, you know, the, it did leave a lot of struggling families behind. Um, you know, we had a lot of we had a lot of poverty. We had, um, you know, a fair amount of drugs and gang mm. violence and things like that growing up. And, you know, it was it didn't feel unsafe, but it was what I knew. So I don't I don't know. In retrospect, maybe it was a little unsafe, perhaps. But um, but it's also kind of experiencing a cultural revolution now. So we've got a lot of new um, art centers that are growing in and a lot of great businesses, awesome restaurants. Um, you know, it's it's kind of rebranding itself right now. So I think that the future is is bright for Ypsilanti, but it definitely did see a, a downturn in terms of uh, tax revenue over the years. So when did the opera singer decide she wanted to help other people? Oh, I mean, we've, so my family uh, was always political growing up and we were always involved in our community. And so we've always been people that helped others. Um, mm-hmm. And my, my parents were involved in our local political um environment my my dad was on city council for much of my childhood um and we would get involved in campaigns all the time um i remember we we ypsilanti is one of the oldest cities to have a non-discrimination ordinance on the books so um in in high school um you know in the 90s well before most cities have had set up a non-discrimination ordinance or who had even considered the fact that um uh, you know, your sexual orientation might be something that people would discriminate against. We were fighting for that. Um, and so, you know, we've always, um, you know, done things like made lunches for homeless people or, um, you know, just contributed as much as we could back into our community. So I think that my parents really shaped that. How old were you when you worked on your first political campaign or did <laughs> canvassing oh, or anything like that? Gosh, um, I couldn't even tell you. I mean, I feel like it's always been a part of my life. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I guess we started getting more involved in politics when I was maybe six or seven, I six guess. Six or seven. Yeah, but um, my dad, I think his first campaign was when I was in fifth grade, I'd mm-hmm. like to say. So I was more like 10 or 11. And that's when I started knocking on doors with him and you know, going canvassing and making phone banking calls. And of course, back then there were no cell phones. So we had to have additional phone lines in our dining room to make those phone bank calls with real, like actual, you know, phones that you picked up that had cables attached and you'd press buttons to, uh, to dial them. Um, but yeah, we had a whole like phone banking system set up in our dining room and that's what we did. So somebody was cutting turf. (laughs) You, know, you had a lot of people in the house doing different things. No, it wasn't so much turf because Ypsilanti was a small town and mm. the wards are pretty tiny. So the turf oh. was pretty much like the ward. Um, mm-hmm. So my dad and I, we would just go and, you know, make the loop. You know, we, we you know, we'd, I don't know how many houses we would canvas, even a couple hundred, maybe four, four or five hundred, I guess. But, you know. Were you intimidated by doing that or mm. not? No, it was just kind of expected. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just knocked on the door and you talked and I watched my dad do it and it it wasn't too challenging. I mean, it got annoying after a while. It's not something that most children are like pumped about doing. You don't really wake up in the morning and say, yes, I'm going to go knock on doors today. But, you know, you also, uh, you just work it in. You, you grow comfortable. So it's a great experience that you had as a kid. Maybe not all the time. Maybe you <laughs> wanted to go play with your friends every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. But it, at some point, pointed you to the law. Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure when that, that turn happened. Well, I mean, I think that was mostly after college. So in in college, I was a political science major, and I took a lot of voice classes, and I was still in choir, and I was getting a music scholarship while I was there. But I was a political science major, and um, I was I had a concentration in public service. So I was mm. always kind of headed in the direction of, of giving back to my community or, or towards my you know, serving the government or, you know, just generally, you know, working my way towards a, a career that might help others um, in, in the public sector. Um, but once I graduated from college, I moved out here to, mm-hmm. to the Washington, D.C. area. Mm. Um, and, you know, I did a bunch of kind of strange little jobs. I, uh, I worked for um, 
I sold cars for three or four months while I first moved here. You sold I cars? Did. I sold Fords. I sold Fords. And, uh, you know, I was okay at it, but it wasn't like the stable income and it wasn't the career path that I was looking for. So. Okay, stop right there. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. You, <laughs> uh, as an executive rep uh, recruiter, yeah. I have placed a lot of salespeople. Uh -huh. You don't fit the mold. No, I don't. Um, but I had a great time and I was, you know, it was like me and maybe like two other women in this 80 person man dealership. And it was an entertaining and interesting experience. And it taught me a lot about how to talk to others and how to, um, you know, ask people for things and to um, negotiate. And they were useful. It was useful life skills and how to follow up and how to, you know, how to close a deal. Um, and that's useful. I bought a car from, I bought a lot of cars, but I bought a car from a woman once and it was the best experience of my life. It was, it was so unpressured. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she listened to us. It was mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. I and I think that's a that's probably something that I brought to that job. But you know, ultimately, it was not really what I saw myself doing long term. So mm -hmm. it was like more a stepping stone. So I I went from that job to, um, I worked at a startup for a. I was a financial services company. It was a subsidiary of a mortgage company and mm -hmm. so I was doing title work and you know the closings and dealing with like mortgages so what was that like it was fine I mean it was very high pressure it was during the um it was right before kind of the bubble started mm -hmm. to blow up um in 2003 so it was you know it was very rapid fire uh very busy you know we were working until midnight at the end of the month trying to get every single deal out the door and you know it was it was crazy but you know it was with, i was working with a bunch of young 20 somethings and we were all working really hard and it was fun and i'm still in touch with a lot of the people from that from that job you don't strike me as somebody who's money motivated no 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 uh i mean i you know i i like to make a living but i'm not um i wasn't really cut out for the corporate world so i I did that until that uh, company, um, the the subsidiary, closed us down one day. Basically, just like, you know, it wasn't working out for them, so they decided to just close the subsidiary. Um, and so I worked for the Willard, inter the Intercontinental, the Willard downtown wow. in D.C. I worked at the front desk and I worked in PR, and then I went into state affairs for the American Insurance Association. After that, so I bounced all around in my early twenties. I stayed at AIA for two years. And I really enjoyed my experience there. And I was working under uh, two very strong, intelligent women. Um, I was working under Tammy Velasquez. Uh, she um, was the vice president of state affairs. And then Leanne Pusey, who was the vice president of federal affairs at the time. And um, both of them were just very strong, outspoken women. And they kind of showed me different paths that you can take. But you needed a JD, you know, you needed a, a law degree oftentimes to do these things. Um, so I, you know, I was really, I was, I was happy to learn from them and, and see the fact that they could have families and they could, um, they could, they could still have children and be good moms. And they also were just incredibly high powered and energetic and influential people in their fields. So they kind of motivated me to, um, you know, look further and to think what else I could do with my future. And that's when I decided to go to law school. And how was that? It was good. I mean, I, I you know, I, uh, law school is not uh, fun. I don't, I don't no. think many people would call it a, a pleasurable experience, but it was really interesting. And I met a lot of amazing people and uh, they, they really teach you how to think. It's not so much that you have to memorize the law or, um, you know, learn any particular you know, cases not, that, I mean, that's, that is something you do in law school, but really mm -hmm. the overarching goal is to make sure that you are a good critical thinker. Um, and so they, they really did a great job in shaping how I, how I saw things and how I processed information and how I could come up with solutions. So as you're going through law school, did it, did it feel like this felt right to you, this direction you were taking? Yeah. Um, you know, I never saw myself so much as like a high powered, um, you know, courtroom type attorney. You know, I, I didn't think I was going to go into big law and I didn't really see myself as, you know, one of those people that, you know, becomes partner and is working, you know, um, you know, an 80 hour week. Um, but, you know, uh, there are a lot of great public uh, lawyers out there and mm -hmm. the government was the direction that I thought I would go in. And that is ultimately where I wound up. Where did you take your bar, Sam? 
So I'm licensed in the state of New York. So I took the New York bar. New York bar. Yeah. It's only the second hardest, I think, behind California, I think. Oh, I don't know. I might put it above California, frankly. (laughs) I don't know. I I mean, uh, it depends on who you ask. I haven't taken the California bar, so I can't comment uh, completely. Very difficult bar exam. I think uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. took it a few times. Well, he took it several times, and there were always rumors about his uh, final passage of that bar. But uh, yeah, we... um, Why New York? At the time, I was dating a guy who thought he was going to wind up at a firm in New York. So I took the New York bar with him. But you know, it's a great bar. It's a bar that has... um, You can uh, wave into more states than almost any other bar if you're licensed in New York. So it has a lot of reciprocity throughout the country. So when did you start working in the federal sector? Uh, so I started with Social Security in 2011. So I, um, I, I worked for two years for a federal law enforcement agency while I was in law school. Mm-hmm. So in 2008 through 2010, I worked for CISOSA, which is the Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency. Um, and they handle the folks that are on parole, probation, and supervised release in the District of Columbia. That used to be um, the realm of the local uh, DC city government, but um, sometime around 1999 or 2000, that became the job of the federal government. Um, So they took over that kind of oversight um, and they formed that small agency. So I worked for them. Um, Mm -hmm. I supported the uh, deputy, I guess we'd call him the deputy director in charge of the Office of Legislative Intergovernmental and Public Affairs. And I worked there for a year, and I also worked for a year under the Office of General Counsel there. So how would you describe the work that you do now? Uh, So I work for the Social Security Administration, and I work in disability adjudication. So I I look at uh, disability cases that have gone, you know, so if somebody applies for disability and they get denied at the initial stage, then they go to the reconsideration stage and maybe they get denied there again. And then they apply for um, a hearing in front of an administrative law judge and say that administrative law judge denies them again. Then they appeal to the appeals council. And so I work for the appeals council, supporting them. And I look through you know, the person's full medical and um, you know, just every piece of evidence that we have in that file. And I um, analyze the case to determine if that administrative law judge um, made a, a decision that's supportable. And um, so I can either send it back to the, well, I can make a recommendation to the administrative appeals judges to send it back for, um, you know, review again by administrative law judge or, um, in, you know, it, sometimes we're able to pay them at our level if we find that there was a mistake made and that actually they qualify for benefits um, or we deny their review. But it sounds like you work with people who are at some level of crisis. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not working directly with the individuals that are in crisis. Right. I'm reviewing their cases. Uh, I don't see them face to face, but I, I believe that you know, behind every claim and every, every you know, case that I'm working on, that there is a human face behind that. And I try very hard to remember that there's a human face behind that so that I can you know, bring um, as much compassion to the, to the job as possible. I bring that up because I think thematically, I, I wonder if it's pointed you to the kind of work that you are doing um, to help people yeah. in our community. And I'll, we'll get to that. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I see people that are, you know, I, I, I don't see them face to face, but I, I read their their lives. I, I read their records with their, you know, psychiatric professionals and I, I see their stories and I see what they've said and I listen, you know, to their hardships. And, you know, it does give you a much deeper insight into how people are struggling throughout America right now. And again, it's made me think that you have a, a big heart. You really care about the people that, that you're helping Deeply. and that you're surrounded by. You know, I, I got to meet your daughter, and she's absolutely adorable. And what really impresses me, and your, your husband and you have really instilled in her this wanderlust, this sense of possibility about the world, which I think is really wonderful. Yeah, she, I mean, she's the light of our lives and we are, we are very grateful to have her. Um, but she's, she's a smart kid and we, but we also try very hard to, to show her that, you know, while we are fortunate to have, you know, certain things that not everyone might have the same privileges or the same benefits or the same things as, as we might. 
Um, and so we, we try very hard to teach her um, about how we can make the world a better place for others too. And with that, you set up the perfect pivot for what I want to get into next, which is your uh, 501c3, mm -hmm. which is called Settle the Debt. What is Settle the Debt? So Settle the Debt is, um, so first of all, my name is Adele Settle. So it's a silly pun on words. Um, it it's was wonderful. You know, it, well, it was one of my friends in our mom's group. Um, so anywho, in, in 2017, we, uh, I was just driving down the street and I heard this interview on NPR and it was about this child in New Mexico who had gone to get a school lunch and he walked up to the cash register with his meal in his hand and it turned out that he didn't have enough money on his account to pay for the lunch. And so the lunch lady took the meal out of his hands and threw it in the trash right in front of him and gave him an alternative meal, like a, you know, a cold cheese sandwich instead of the healthy meal. So they took a healthy meal, one that had already been served that they couldn't give to anybody else. And instead of letting that child eat that meal, they threw it away and they did it in front of him. And, you know, of course a child is going to be traumatized by that. So I'm listening to this story and I'm horrified because I wanted to make sure that this wasn't happening nearby me and that, you know, our local kids aren't experiencing that same trauma. Um, and I just kind of started exploring, like, what, what is the situation with, with our school lunches? Are kids having their needs met? Are they getting the nutrition that they need? Um, and just kind of really digging deep into what our local you know, what our local policies look like and how they are shaping kids. Um, and so in doing that, I raised, you know, over 24 hours, I raised enough money to cover the three schools that are closest to my home. So we paid those three schools off with, I don't know, maybe $1,700 or something. We did that really fast. My friends are super generous and they just sent me the money to PayPal and we just took care of it immediately. Um, and then they were all asking me for more schools. They were like, well, there's gotta be more schools that need help find more schools for us. So I reached out to the county and was like, so what's the scoop? How big is the problem? How big is the school debt? Turns out it was really big. It was really, really big. It was bigger than what my friends could come up with individually, but it was around $300,000 on an annual basis. Wow. It's, it's a lot of money. I didn't realize it was that high. So let's, yeah. let's back up a second. Sure. We are in Prince William County, Virginia, which mm -hmm. Some people may not be familiar with it. It's, uh, I guess you call it a bedroom community of, uh, of uh, Virginia, of, of Washington, D.C. We're in Northern mm -hmm. Virginia. We are the second largest county in the Commonwealth. Mm -hmm. And by all measures, a wealthy county. However, mm -hmm. yeah. that doesn't tell the whole story. No. So in Prince William County, um, you know, yes, it's the second largest county in, in the state. Um, and it is very successful and we've got a lot of people that make a lot of money, but we also have a lot of people who aren't making a lot of money. Um, you know, we have tons of kids on free and reduced lunch. Um, so the, there's a lot of income disparity in our county. Yes, we have a lot of wealthy people and we have a lot of people who are comfortable and are living, you know, um, comfortable lives. But we also have a lot of families who are, um, you know, they're going to our kids' schools and they're, they're struggling. Um, and so, uh, it's, it's sometimes easy to overlook them when you look at just the, you know, just the data about how, how wealthy and how large our county can be. So we have a lot of working poor. We do. We do. Um, and, you know, to qualify for free and reduced lunch, um, you know, some, some folks might not be familiar. The limits are set nationally. Um, it's, it's established by the federal government. And those, uh, those levels don't take into consideration cost of living. So here in Prince William County, you know, it's a very um, expensive place to live. Mm -hmm. we're, we're close to D.C. Housing is extraordinarily expensive here. Um, transportation is expensive because you have to go a very far distance oftentimes to work. Um, you know, things are just expensive here. Um, but to qualify for free and reduced lunch, it doesn't matter if you live here in northern Virginia or you live in the middle of the country um, in, a, in a small town, it's going to be the same. So for a family of four, it's maybe roughly $35,000 to qualify or less for a family of four to qualify for free lunch and to qualify for reduced lunch be maybe around $45,000, give or take, um, based on the inflation for the year. But around $45,000 for that same family of four. And you can't earn over that for the reduced lunch. And reduced lunch just means that you're only paying maybe 30 or 40 cents a meal instead of paying the full, you know, 265 or $3 or whatever it is for, for your child's meal. Um, 
but after after that $45,000 cutoff for that family of four, there is no other option. There's there's just you're paying full price for the meal. So if you think about how expensive it is to live in Northern Virginia, you think like a family of four earning maybe $75,000. Mm-hmm. You can still absolutely be struggling here wow. in Prince William County earning $75,000 for, for a family of four. Um, but there are no programs for you. There are no options uh, that involve um, federal or state dollars that will chip in for your child's lunch. What happens to a family that suffers, a working poor family that suffers a setback from one school year to the next? Sure. Um, well, if if they're if they've suffered a setback that has reduced their income further down, so that they would qualify for free and reduced lunch, they should apply um, and take advantage of the benefits when they when they qualify for them. Um, and that same thing goes for if you're a federal employee and we go through another shutdown. If we go through a shutdown and you are reduced, your household income has reduced to under that thirty-five or forty-five thousand, or or whatever it might be for your specific family size, you should immediately apply for free and reduced lunch um, because you will be you will be deemed eligible, and your child will not have to pay uh, for lunch uh, for the for the remainder of the period that you need it. Um, but if you suffer a setback, but you're still earning over that cap, there is no program available for you. So that that seventy-five thousand dollar family that is struggling um say they earn fifty five thousand dollars uh for the next year because they you know they lost some wages or a, a one of the partners was injured or something like that there is no program um that is federally or state funded that will come in and help you you just mentioned something that i think is very interesting we have a lot of laborers here mm-hmm. uh they can be contractors yeah. building houses pouring concrete sure. paving roads sometimes people get injured mm-hmm. They don't get paid. Mm-hmm. If they don't work, they, they don't get a paycheck most likely. And But if they're still earning over that cap, their family is not going to qualify. But I mean, if if their change in circumstances is such that your your income immediately goes down, you can apply mid-year. So it's okay. You know, if you have suffered an injury and all of a sudden your income is going to be zero for a couple of months, immediately apply your child for free and reduced lunch because that change in circumstances will be considered. You'll just have to document it somehow, showing that you're you're not earning that money. So our listeners come from a lot of different backgrounds. Not everybody has children, and not everybody has experienced the strife, the trauma of being a working poor person. What happens to a child who doesn't get proper nutrition at school? Yeah, um, you know, kids who aren't getting enough nutrition, they aren't having their needs met, um, odds are good that they might miss more school than the average child. So they might not come to school or they might be late for school on a regular basis because they're hungry, um, because they just might not be motivated to get up and get going. They also um, are more likely to have behavioral issues. So if a child is hungry, Mm -hmm. maybe they aren't able to focus, maybe they're falling asleep, or maybe they're just bouncing off the walls, or, you know, maybe they're just angry. you can address a lot of those challenges with just making sure that the child has gotten breakfast and has gotten lunch, um, and, a, and a healthy lunch, one that has some protein and one that has you know a good mix of fruits and vegetables. Um, you want to make sure that, that kids have access to those very basic things because um, you know a, a kid who's hungry isn't going to learn and they aren't going to remember things. I imagine you've learned a lot about our nation's relationship to food. It's not a good story, is it? You know, uh, I mean, in some ways we have we have amazing stories. You know, we've got a lot of great family farms and we've got um, we've got so much wealth and abundance in this country. Um, but at the same time, we're not making sure that every town has access to fresh fruits and vegetables or every neighborhood has access to fresh fruits and vegetables and that every child has the balanced nutrition that they need. Um, I'm of the mindset that food, like adequate nutrition, shouldn't be a luxury. It should be something that every child and every person has available to them, you know, and if if someone is struggling, we should be there to help as a nation. So in some parts of the country, especially in urban areas, and I'm sure some of our listeners have heard the term food desert. Mm -hmm. The idea behind that is in, in some parts of a community, perhaps an urban community, there aren't quality supermarkets. There aren't quality greengrocers. There may be a bodega. There may be a place that sells a lot of processed food. Mm -hmm. What does that do to somebody 
who their only options, maybe they don't own a car. Yeah. I mean, childhood obesity rates are skyrocketing because of the availability of cheap, um, you know, really inexpensive food, but food that's high in carbs and high in sugar, but low in, you know, protein and low in uh, fiber, things like that. I mean, our, our, our kids are getting bigger and bigger. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're seeing an increase in juvenile diabetes issues um, and, and type 2 diabetes even in children. Um, and and it's, um, I think it is tied to our, to our availability of healthy foods and, and the fact that so many people just can't afford or can't get to those healthy foods to provide them for their families. I'm hoping we get to a point, you know, one of the, um, the issues we talk about on this podcast is the, this idea of localism, which is taking, taking the force of government away from Washington and driving it down at the localist level you can possibly do. Like here in Prince William County, the Board of Supervisors, the House of Delegates, mm-hmm. the school board, the yeah. soil and water board. And one thing that I, I see in some communities, I don't know if it's happening here, is bringing urban gardening yeah. to the school. You know, I mean, our soil and water board, the new members of, the, of that board are so excited about that concept. Um, and I, I know that there are, are local communities who have brought gardens in. Um, to my knowledge, Prince William County doesn't have them yet, but mm-hmm. I think it is something that we definitely could do here. I think the Board of County Supervisors would be, you know, amenable to considering it at least. And I think that our schools would certainly benefit from having gardens on site and from, you know, just uh, growing produce right so hyper locally so that those kids can get involved in the agricultural you know, process and seeing their food grown and, and children. I mean, I know when I have um, green beans growing on my back porch, for instance, we put green beans in pots on our back porch and Hazel, you know, my daughter watered them and made sure that they were growing. Then she helped pick them and she was far more willing to eat green beans that we grew ourselves from seeds that she could then pick and wash and snap and she would eat them, you know, because, because she grew them. And she's really curious about how that works. And I think that other children also experience that. I think they really love seeing the fruits of their labor, literally. They actually can pick the things that they have helped grow. And I'd love to see that in our schools. Well, children your daughter's age are such a sponge. First of all, they're so enthusiastic about Mm -hmm. doing something like that. I think that would go a long way to solving a lot of problems. First of all, um, it quite possibly would mitigate uh, the food issues we have in school where kids aren't eating. I mean, if you're growing food locally, you don't have to process it as much. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have to process process it as much, then the people growing it, if they're doing it for profit, make more money. Well, it's also just better for you, too. It's better I for mean, you. And it's better for the earth. We don't have to drive. We don't have the carbon emissions you know, of, of vehicles driving the produce around. We don't have to... You know, we, we don't have to deal with storing it. It literally just goes straight from the garden to the sink to be washed and then to a pot to cook it. And, and again, in our local communities, there's plenty of land, I think, at schools, even on top of the roof of schools. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But all the schools have enough space to have a small plot of a garden. I mean, it, it doesn't take a lot of space. I mean, there's a school in Brooklyn right now that has like this tiny... You know, I, I think it's a rooftop garden um, and they've got like a greenhouse situation going on there and it grows year round and they're growing enough produce that they are selling it at discounted, like discounted rates for people in the area. Everything that they don't need at the school for, you know, for cheap prices so that play, people in food deserts, people in areas where they can't get a lot of local produce can get it at a discount. And it's it's great. It's going into the community. It's going to those children's homes that, that are growing the food and it's going into their meals at, at school. It's really neat. You know, in, in doing some research for another episode, I came upon a term that I was somewhat familiar with called uh, food justice. You're sort of like a food justice warrior, aren't you? Uh, I suppose I am. Um, I, you know, I kind of shy away from titles, but, uh, but you know, I, I feel strongly that children, especially children, everyone deserves to eat, but I feel very strongly that, that our kids shouldn't be going without ever, you know, they should be able to have their basic needs met. They should have to, you know, they should have warm clothes in the winter. They should have food in their bellies in, you know, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they should have security. You know, these are basic things. It's late November. Earlier this month, we had an election that really turned our, our government in, in Richmond 
uh, upside down in kind of a good way, I think, mm. in the sense that I, I'm hopeful that you will finally get support for some of your initiatives. What, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I'm so excited. Yeah. Uh, so in 2018, so there was an election in 2017 mm -hmm. and uh, a whole lot of local delegates seats were flipped. And so mm -hmm. uh, my new delegate uh, that was elected in 2017 and who took office in 2018 is Delegate Danica Rome. Um, and she is uh, just amazing with constituent services. So she has worked with me tirelessly to ensure that we introduce legislation every year um, to reduce lunch shaming and to um, make it easier for kids to get fed in schools and to um, just generally treat children with dignity um, and so that so they don't get punished for their family's financial situations like a child shouldn't have to pay the consequences for their parent not being able to afford right. to feed them um, there should be no stigma attached to that the child shouldn't have to deal with that if you want to deal with the parents that's that's one thing but to put that on the child by depriving them of circumstances like I'm um, going to dances or going to field trips or, you know, having educational experiences. These are things that we do in Virginia, um, you know, where we say, oh, I'm sorry, you can't walk at graduation because you have lunch debt. Oh, I'm sorry, you can't go to the end of your dance because you have lunch debt. This is happening in our schools. So let's talk about that. <laughs> um for for a bit of disclosure, my daughter graduated last year from this school system. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a great school system. Yeah. So many of her friends were affected by this. Mm -hmm. And it's something that people just don't really even talk about. It's, um, it's so common and it feels like people have just accepted that this is a consequence that children should bear. And I don't think that's right. I think that we need to completely do away with this concept that a child has any responsibility for, for a debt that was incurred when they were a child in school. Um, this is not something that a child should have to bear the brunt of, and a child shouldn't have to bear the punishment for their parents not being able to pay some debt. So if you want to take it up with parents, uh, if they haven't paid a debt, or you want to deal with them, that's that's one thing. But but taking it out on the child who is, you know, not likely to have a job or have financial means whatsoever. We should not be, we should not be, um, you know, uh, punishing them to try and get their parents to pay a bill. We should just deal with the parents directly. We had a situation earlier this year in my family where one of us got rear-ended mm. in a traffic accident. And the gentleman, uh, who was an immigrant, um, day laborer mm -hmm. actually he was a painter i think mm -hmm. um he hit the back of my car with such force i wasn't driving but his truck wasn't operable oh he's out of work yeah he can't drive mm -hmm. i don't know his situation but i i know he had children mm -hmm. in this county and i i can't imagine what that must feel like you're doing the right things you're working you're mm -hmm. putting food on the table sure you're struggling you're not making a lot of money but you're doing everything that society expects you to do mm -hmm. as a member of society I, I think this is the thing that that concerns me so much we are so close to disaster every one of us yeah but you know right now um the environment is such that if you if your immigration status is at all questionable, mm -hmm. if you are not even just undocumented, but if you are a person who is working to apply for a green card, um, families are so concerned about being perceived as being a drain on society right now because that's what our government is, is telling them, that you can't, you can't become a citizen if you are availing yourself of social services. Um, now that doesn't include the free and reduced lunch program. Right. It, it's excluded from that list of, of uh, things that they don't want a person to have used. Um, but a lot of immigrant families are very concerned right now about using free and reduced lunch for their children. So even if it is completely acceptable for them to have applied for it, and it is available to them because of, of what their income for their family level is. There are families who are choosing not to apply for free and reduced lunch right now because they are afraid that applying for it may impact their ability to become citizens. And that's a, no, a whole other area of, of children that we are leaving out and that we are leaving behind because they're, they're afraid. And I, I certainly can't say you shouldn't be afraid. I mean, I, 
I too would be afraid if I were in that circumstance. So I understand. And so we, we've now got lunch debt for these children who by all rights should qualify for free and reduced lunch, but who just don't feel comfortable taking advantage of the benefit right now. So tell us about your mission for Settle the Debt. Yeah. It's not just local here in Virginia, right? Um, so it's uh, it's kind of twofold. Um, right now, you know, we mostly raise money for, for Northern Virginia schools, mostly Prince William County. We do have um, one of our board members is in Alexandria, and so she she's a dentist. Her name is Courtney Marsban, and her practice donates two lunches for every new patient they see. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and they're in Kingstown. Um, and... Uh, so we're working with a local school in in the Kingstown area, um, and we'll you know pay every every penny that she puts in towards it towards her school of choice that's right by her her office. Um, but we mostly support Prince William County Schools in terms of fundraising and trying to pay down Prince William County School lunch debt. Um, but you know I also advocate with Danica, with Delegate Danica Rome to um, put out more legislation um, to try and improve the circumstances around the state. Um, and I've, I've reached out to our member of Congress and to a variety of people on the Hill to see if there's any possibility for, um, you know, for eventually for universal meals. I, I would like to personally see that every child um, just be guaranteed uh, breakfast and lunch with their, with their public education. I think that ultimately that's where we have to go in order to ensure that there's equity throughout. I think every child should get breakfast and lunch when they go to a public school. I agree. Without check, checking their income or, or any other factor, literally every child should just get a breakfast and lunch. And if you want to bring a lunch, if you want to pack your own, that's fine. Yeah. But if you don't want to, you will be fed. And I think that that is what would, what would truly um, make our education system equitable across the board. My expertise is, is workforce. I spent 20 years as a recruiter. Mm -hmm. I see what happens when we don't prepare our children, mm -hmm. and that includes nutrition. I think nutrition is a is part of an is an educational component. Well, it's um, you know it's one of those most basic of needs. It's right up there with having shelter and clothing and getting enough sleep at night. Mm -hmm. Making sure that a child is eating you know healthy, appropriate foods for their bodies so that they're able to grow strong and to you know, to have the, just the energy to, to learn and retain information. I mean, it is crucial for a child's well-being to, to be fed adequately. And I know that there are so many children who aren't getting that. You know, they might go to school, but, and their school lunch might be the best meal of their day. You know, they might not get a good breakfast at home before they go to school. And they, you know, uh, in Virginia, at least, we have a lot of breakfast options. Thankfully, mm -hmm. we have, you know, after the bell breakfast, and we have a lot of school breakfast programs. And, and I'm so grateful. Um, Dorothy McAuliffe, uh, T Governor Terry McAuliffe's wife, mm -hmm. championed that uh, when she was the first lady uh, here in Virginia. And it has made an, a remarkable difference in the lives of children. Um, but, you know, I just, I just want to make sure that, that every child has enough to get by, you know, because we've got kids who are going home with, um, you know, backpacks of food on the weekends because their families can't afford to keep enough food in the house to keep them fed over the weekends. I mean, we've, but these are inconsistent programs. They're not available at every school and they're not getting to every kid who needs them. So we've got kids who are still going without, you know, dinner programs that, that are great. I mean, here in Prince William County, I think we have 15 schools that are offering free dinner if you sign up for it and you can just come and eat dinner every day. Mm -hmm. And that's amazing. That's a huge gift. And I'm so grateful that it exists. But, you know, we have, what do we have? Like something like 98, 99 schools. Mm -hmm. If only 15 of them are offering this program, I'm not sure that those kids can get to those 15 schools easily enough. So I think this plays to a bigger issue. I'm married to an educator, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, uh, who works in the school system. And so I, I, get a, I, I get a sense of the cause and effect over many, many years. We get so singularly focused on standards of learning mm -hmm. and teaching to the test. Yeah. But if you have a malnourished child, they're not going to perform. No. So why don't we... Why don't we create a level playing field for food? 
hey, it would solve a lot of problems. It would solve a whole lot of problems. And that's what I would love to see. You know, I would love to see that every kid who needs a meal gets a meal. And I know in Prince William County, they're moving towards that. And I'm so grateful that they are moving towards that. They're, they're, uh, to my knowledge, they are winding down the alternative meals program here in Prince William County. Um, it hasn't been changed in the regs yet, but the director of food nutrition services has told me that they are not going to continue offering alternative meals and that if any kid asks for a meal that they're going to get a meal i mean i want to see that become policy i want to see it in writing that this is what they're going to do but it is encouraging to hear that they're they're thinking about these changes and that they're working towards them so we have a national audience and for somebody listening to this who's outside of our area Mm -hmm. who says i want to do something about this well, I would imagine they could, if they wanted to, they could uh, give you a contribution oh, yeah. at Settle the Debt. <laughs> sure, we can talk about that in a bit. But within their own local community, yeah, how would you point them to action? Yeah, so um, I'm friends with this guy named Jeff Liu, uh, L-E-W, and he's out in Seattle. And so his nickname is Lunch Dad. Lunch Dad. Lunch Dad. And he's awesome. Um, he has raised so many thousands and thousands of dollars for the Seattle School District. And... I would say, you know, look to him as a guide. Um, you know, I am doing this kind of on a small scale right now, mm-hmm. but of course, now that we've got 501c3 status, I hope to ramp it up to a much larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has received, oh, I mean, I don't even know, maybe over a million dollars. I don't know, a tons of money um, towards his local school campaigns. Um, and it's just been so heartwarming to watch. And I would say that, you know, look to all these schools all over the country. You can Google, you know, lunch debt and you can see GoFundMe after GoFundMe after GoFundMe. And you too can set up a GoFundMe account for Mm -hmm. your local schools and take care of your local debt. But the first step is really just calling your school, calling your school system, you know, checking with the the director of, you know, nutrition there Mm -hmm. or or the superintendent's office and finding out what's the situation here. Are we feeding kids? Are kids going hungry? Um, is there a big lunch debt problem? Are we extending credit to kids? Are we are we saying that you can have you can go into debt, or are we just saying that if you hit zero, we don't give you food? Um, and then you need to just go from there and advocate for those children um, and just see where where your school system is at, mm-hmm. and then how they can be better. So, what has settle the debt meant to Adele Settle? Wow, um, you know it has. It's really given me a, a goal, a single goal to see through. Um, it's, it's kind of taken a life of its own. Um, it's, it's gone from being this small part of my life, like this nice thing to do, to mm-hmm. being um, a very large part of my life. And so I am working on it constantly, and I'm trying to think of new ways that we can do what we do better and bigger. Um, so like we're, we have formed a board and we're having board meetings now and we're planning a big gala in April, um, April in 2020. Um, and we're just, we're thinking much bigger now. And so it's, it's been really eye opening to know that this small little, you know, this interview I heard on NPR Mm -hmm. and this, this concern I had has grown and that people believe in this cause. So many of my friends, so many strangers, believe in what we're doing and want to see us uh, be successful. And that's, it's just been very powerful for me. This podcast I do is about meaningful work. You're doing meaningful work. I I believe I am. Yeah, this is, this is one of the most meaningful. I mean, having a child is incredibly meaningful to me, but this is also, it's on that level of, of meaning for me. I take great personal pride in, in the work that we're doing and and hopefully that the success that we'll see I, I want to leave a lasting impact for kids here in virginia and throughout the country i want to to help make that change so somebody hearing this who's taking inspiration from you for doing meaningful work any pointers to them what they can look out for in their own lives and their own environments and say i need to do something about this i need to be a part of something yeah i mean just keep your eyes and ears open for some small problem that you think should be handled differently. You know, this a child having lunch debt, it's it might seem some so very small to you. It's it's just a, a little thing. It's a kid who maybe owes twenty bucks and they're worried about how they're gonna pay that twenty bucks. Um mm-hmm. you know, it seems like a small issue, but if you multiply it by the number of kids that are in debt throughout the country, you know, it, it becomes a much larger problem. Um 
but I just say try to address it locally and then get bigger from there. You know, if you've taken care of the immediate situation at your local school or whatever the local situation is for you, then then look to the community and then look beyond that. So Adele Settle, thank you for walking the tightrope with us. If somebody wanted to uh, look at your social media, where would you point them? Yeah, uh, there are a variety of places they can go. Um, you can find me on Instagram at settle underscore the underscore debt. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at settle the debt. You can find me on Facebook at Settle the Debt. Uh, and you can also find me at SettleTheDebt.org online. Um, we've just set up a PayPal link on there. Um, so you can donate through the website. And uh, we will have a lot of events and upcoming, you know, we're, we're hoping to organize a 5K. You can, you can find me all over the place. We have lots of opportunities for you to help. So to our listeners, if you go to our show notes page, you will find links to every one of those um, social media points, including the donation bar. Uh, that Adele mentioned. Again, Adele Settle, thank you so much for walking the tightrope. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Our thanks go out to Adele Settle for walking the tightrope with us. Links to her social media are included in the show notes for this episode. Our success is your success, but we cannot build our community without your help and support. So if you haven't done so already, please join the Dan Smolin Experience to get our newsletter offering information, tips, and hacks to help you succeed in doing meaningful work. To sign up, simply click the Subscribe to the Dan Smolin Experience newsletter button on our homepage at dansmolin.com. Fill out the short form, then click the Subscribe button at the bottom of the page, and you'll be on your way. Also, become a regular listener of the Tightrope with Dan Smolin podcast. You can easily find current and past episodes by keywording The Tightrope with Dan Smolin at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, on our website at dansmolin.com, or wherever you choose to listen. And don't forget to show your support on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. You can locate our social media buttons at the upper right corner of our webpages at dansmolin.com. From Washington, D.C., this is The Tightrope. I'm your host, Dan Smolin, and do remember this, our best days lie ahead. Have a great and successful week, everyone. Mm-hmm.